You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago Medical School, Dr. David T. Rubin. We know more about treating chronic hepatitis C than ever before, but with the advancing treatment options and large patient volume, gastroenterologists and hepatologists face a number of clinical and therapeutic challenges. More recently, these clinicians have also faced administrative and financial challenges in the management of this complex patient population. Taking care of hepatitis C patients can be a money-losing operation, since many of the procedures and diagnostic tests are downstream and not usually fed back to the referring specialist. I'm sure there are many other disease states and healthcare models that are similar to this problem, so I was delighted to learn from our guest, Dr. Imtiaz Alam, who has described a variety of solutions to this challenge. Dr. Alam is a gastroenterologist, hepatologist, and medical director of the Austin Hepatitis Center. He is also acting chief of gastroenterology and hepatology at the Brackenridge Hospital in Austin, Texas. Dr. Alam, welcome to ReachMD. What's the magnitude of hepatitis C in the United States right now? How important is this issue? Well, it's estimated approximately 4 million people are chronically infected with this virus. However, up to maybe 50% of people don't even know they have it. The number of new cases is declining in comparison to peak prevalence of about 130,000 new cases in late 1980s. We're now seeing about 10,000 new cases. But the problem is, is that this is a chronic disease it takes approximately 20 to 30 years for the disease to progress to a stage where you're progressing to chronic fibrosis or cirrhosis. So we're now seeing the impact of hepatitis C, and that's why in gastroenterology, hepatology practices and private practice, we're seeing more and more of these cases, ultimately complications of cirrhosis as well. So university programs are seeing them when they're dealing with the more complicated cases, but at the, at the private practice level in the offices, we have to deal with this problem as well because there's a large volume of patients and the university programs can't handle all these cases. So the number of newly infected individuals has decreased because we've learned about the transmission of this. Is that right? Yes. We've incorporated screening procedures such as blood testing when they donate blood. We've also, at the primary care level, developed programs to ask questions, those who have potential risk factors for acquiring this infection, and then test them early. Yes. So we're now seeing the results of a large group of people who have chronic liver disease and are developing the complications from that. When is it estimated that we might peak in terms of seeing those complications? Is that modeled somehow? There's a, uh, some data that was presented at a national meeting uh, a few years ago by Gary Davis from University of Florida. And he looked at following this natural history of 20, 30 years of developing cirrhosis and looking at when the peak incidence of hepatitis C was in 1988. He said, what would happen 20 years later? And this model, what it predicted was that what we're going to see in terms of the impact on the healthcare system would be almost a 500% increase in complications of liver disease, a 200% increase in cirrhosis, a 60% increase in liver cancer. So the figures are not good in terms of the next 10 years of the complications of hepatitis C, which is why it's imperative that as physicians in the front line of treating hepatitis C, that we treat as many patients as possible and as aggressively and as early as possible. If we allow this disease to progress to cirrhosis and the complications develop, it's going to be much more difficult to treat these patients. And ultimately, there aren't enough liver transplants available, liver organs available to transplant all these patients. When you have about 17,000 people waiting annually for a transplant, but yet only about 5,000 transplants are done. 
it is imperative that we treat them early on before we allow them to progress to cirrhosis and if it's necessary to need a transplant. So that's a really important point. So recognizing that ReachMD has such a broad audience, what group of patients are at increased risk for hep C? Who should these physicians be identifying so that they can treat them earlier? Right. About 65% of the population who are developing, who are acquiring hep C are IV drug users. So that's a huge population. An increasing number is sexual transmission among multiple partners. In a single relationship, a monogamous relationship, the risk is fairly low, but in multiple partners, the risk can increase to up to 20%. And then you're looking at another, then the smaller group of people are those who potentially have had tattooing, snorted cocaine, body piercing, who have, through pregnancy, is very small risk, but certainly if a, if a mother had hep C, it can be transferred to the child. On dialysis patients as well can be potentially acquired because of the, uh, the usage of blood on the dialysis. And blood transfusions prior to 92, is that still right? The risk now is exceptionally low, but before 92 or any blood products before 1992, organ transplant before 1992, there are potential risk, yes. So does a at-risk patient have to have an elevated liver number to be screened? None at all. The key at the primary care level, which is what we've been trying to explain to them, is that, in fact, up to 60% of patients with hep C may have normal liver tests. But about 35 of them have persistently normal liver tests. About 30% of them have fluctuating levels of liver tests. So at any one time, they may have normal liver tests, up to 60% of them. So don't base it upon the liver test. Just because liver tests are normal does not exclude the possibility of hep C. Base it upon risk factors. So really, what the primary care physicians need to be doing, in addition to dealing with diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease, they should be asking their patients, do you belong to any of these risk factors? And if they say yes, screen them early for hepatitis C. At the pregnancy level, it's interesting that obstetricians already screen patients for hep B at the time that they're pregnant, but they don't do that for hep C. So that may be another avenue of screening is that all those who are pregnant need to be screened, and those who have potentially other risk factors at the primary care level need to be screened. Without screening them, I think we're going to be missing a number of patients if you just purely based upon the liver test being abnormal. So in your practice, and you're obviously a very busy academic gastroenterologist and hepatologist, what is the most common way these patients are found and then referred to you? The bulk of the patients going to a private practice, gastroenterology, hepatology practice, are primary are referrals from a primary care physician or an internist that they've picked up because the liver tests were abnormal or because they had a risk factor and they happened to test them for. However, increasingly, because your practice is known in an area that you are interested in hepatitis C, you're going to get a lot of self-referrals from patients who are going on the Internet, talking to other people, go to programs, and listening to people on the, on the news and so on. And so that's uh, becoming an increasing referral basis as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. David Rubin, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Imtiaz Alam. Dr. Alum, when I was in training, we were taught that hep C was really not a very treatable condition. Obviously, that's changed in the last 20 years. Can you briefly summarize for us what we think of the disease as a treatable disease now? I think when somebody has been diagnosed with hepatitis C, the first most important thing you tell them is now that the therapies that are available provide increased chances of essentially being cured of hepatitis C. And I use the word cured because I think patients understand that better then if you use the true statement, which correct statement, which is called a sustained viral response, which means that if you go through a course of therapy, say between 6 to 12 months of, of therapy, and 6 months post-therapy, there is no virus level present, there's no virus present, then by definition you are a sustained viral responder. Essentially what the data shows in these patients who have achieved SVR, a sustained viral response, that at 5 years after, they still remain negative, and, and only le- less than 1% of patients 
ever get relapse of the virus. So to my, what I tell my patients is you're essentially cured. Unless you have other risk factors acquiring the virus at some future date, it's unlikely to come back. Having said that, though, unfortunately, a cure is not available for everybody. When we look at treatment options, you specifically look for a test called the genotype of the virus. By looking at the genotype, it can help us determine what is the likelihood of responding to the therapy. The majority of patients in this country are genotype 1s, which are the most difficult ones to treat. The minority are genotype 2 and 3, which are easy to treat. In terms of treatment, we've advanced significantly from the early 90s when we had interferon alone, which is an injection that you took into your skin and you took it three times a week at that time. And your response rates at that time, the likelihood of becoming a sustained responder was less than 5%. Since then, we've progressed to where we now have changed the interferon in such a way that we've added an inert component called pegylation that allows interferon to be injected once a week. In addition to that, we have given a drug called ribavirin, which is a pill, and the combination of both has increased our likelihood of achieving sustained viral response. So now, with the best therapy with genotype 1 patient, the average figures are you have about between 40 to 50% chance of a sustained response going into the therapy. So now we've educated our audience about who they should be screening and that this is more treatable than ever before. So why did I start off by saying this is a money-losing proposition? Why are doctors losing money taking care of these patients? Well, I think that's a perception, and I think that's a wrong perception. The reason why it's a wrong perception is because they don't look at the overall, in terms of the money stream of what this patient can generate. And I think basically what's happened in the gastroenterology practice is that they see procedures as being the main source of income because for every, the amount of time that's spent in procedure to number of patients seen, the dollar figures in the procedures are larger than the dollar figures in the patients. The primary reason why reimbursement is higher than procedure is because it is a procedure, and that's technically how the medical field has changed in this country. That's changing now. Medicare is trying to cut down in reimbursement of procedures. And as a result of that, they're increasing reimbursement for office visits. So cerebral activity is being reimbursed at a higher rate than, say, last year, and it will continue to rise. And that's why I tell physicians when I encounter them about hepatitis C treatment is that hepatitis C is going to be here for the next 10 years. We can't run away from it. The academic centers cannot handle all these patients. It has on the onus on the primary care gastroenterologist to start seeing these patients. And the key for them is know how to generate income, how best to generate income, and how to bring patients in and have, have enough high enough volume to generate the income that they're looking for. And not in terms of that, that can also compensate for some of the time they spend with these patients by looking at other ancillary supports to their practice and so it may not take them out of their practice in terms of doing procedures. And this is the value of adding the mid-level provider. And what you're going to see is in terms of chronic disease management in the future, not only hep C, more and more specialists are going to be incorporating the so-called mid-level providers to manage chronic disease while the physician spends more time and doing procedures and so on. I want to thank you for today's segment, Dr. Mtiaz Alam, for your strategies on managing hepatitis C in a busy practice and educating our listeners about who to screen for this. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com 
and use promo code AGA.